Section 11 of the History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume 3, Chapter 15. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume 3, Chapter 15, by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Section 11. The Queen and her council hastened to take measures for the defence of the country against both foreign and domestic enemies. Torrington took the command of the English fleet, which lay in the Downs, and sailed to St. Helens. He was there joined by a Dutch squadron under the command of Evertson. It seemed that the cliffs of the Isle of Wight would witness one of the greatest naval conflicts recorded in history. A hundred and fifty ships of the line could be counted at once from the watch-tower of St. Catharines. On the cast of the huge precipice of Black Gang Sheen, and in full view of the richly wooded rocks of St. Lawrence and Ventnor, were mustered the maritime forces of England and Holland. On the west, stretching to that white cape where the waves roar among the needles, lay the armament of France. It was on the 26th of June, less than a fortnight after William had sailed for Ireland, that the hostile fleets took up these positions. A few hours earlier there had been an important and anxious sitting of the Privy Council at Whitehall. The malcontents who were leagued with France were alert and full of hope. Mary had remarked, while taking her airing, that Hyde Park was swarming with them. The whole board was of opinion that it was necessary to arrest some persons of whose guilt the government had proofs. When Clarendon was named, something was said in his behalf by his friend and relation, Sir Henry Capel. The other councillors stared, but remained silent. It was no pleasant task to accuse the Queen's kinsman in the Queen's presence. Mary had scarcely ever opened her lips at council, but now, being possessed of clear proofs of her uncle's treason in his own handwriting, and knowing that respect for her prevented her advisers from proposing what the public safety required, she broke the silence. "'Sir Henry,' she said, "'I know, and everybody here knows, as well as I, that there is too much against my lord Clarendon to leave him out. The warrant was drawn up, and Capel signed it with the rest. I am more sorry for lord Clarendon, Mary wrote to her husband, than, maybe, will be believed. That evening Clarendon and several other noted Jacobites were lodged in the tower. When the Privy Council had risen, the Queen and the Interior Council of Nine had to consider a question of the gravest importance. What orders were to be sent to Torrington? The safety of the state might depend on his judgment and presence of mind, and some of Mary's advisers apprehended that he would not be found equal to the occasion. Their anxiety increased when news came that he had abandoned the coast of the Isle of Wight to the French, and was retreating before them towards the Straits of Dover. The sagacious Carmarthen and the enterprising Monmouth agreed in blaming these cautious tactics. It was true that Torrington had not so many vessels as Tourville, but Carmarthen thought that, at such a time, it was advisable to fight, although against odds, and Monmouth was, through for life, for fighting at all times and against all odds. Russell, who was indisputably one of the best seamen of the age, held that the disparity of numbers was not such as ought to cause any uneasiness to an officer who commanded English and Dutch sailors. He therefore proposed to send to the Admiral a reprimand couched in terms so severe that the Queen did not like to sign it. The language was much softened, but in the main Russell's advice was followed. Torrington was positively ordered to retreat no further, and to give battle immediately. Devonshire, however, was still unsatisfied. 
"'It is my duty, madam,' he said, "'to tell your majesty exactly what I think on a matter of this importance, "'and I think that my lord Torrington is not a man to be trusted with the fate of three kingdoms.' Devonshire was right, but his colleagues were unanimously of opinion that to supersede a commander in sight of the enemy, and on the eve of a general action, would be a course full of danger, and it is difficult to say that they were wrong. "'You must either,' said Russell, "'leave him where he is, or send for him as a prisoner.' Several expedients were suggested. Carmarthen proposed that Russell should be sent to assist Torrington. Monmouth passionately implored permission to join the fleet in any capacity, as a captain or as a volunteer. Only let me be on board, and I pledge my life that there shall be a battle. After much discussion and hesitation, it was resolved that both Russell and Monmouth should go down to the coast. They set out, but too late. The dispatch which ordered Torrington to fight had preceded them. It reached him when he was off Beachy Head. He read it, and was in a great strait. Not to give battle was to be guilty of direct disobedience." To give battle was, in his judgment, to incur serious risk of defeat. He probably suspected, for he was of a captious and jealous temper, that the instructions which placed him in so painful a dilemma had been framed by enemies and rivals, with a design unfriendly to his fortune and his fame. He was exasperated by the thought that he was ordered about and overruled by Russell, who, though his inferior in professional rank, exercised, as one of the Council of Nine, a supreme control over all the departments of the public service. There seems to be no ground for charging Torrington with disaffection. Still less can it be suspected that an officer, whose whole life had been passed in confronting danger, and who had always borne himself bravely, wanted the courage which hundreds of sailors on board of every ship under his command possessed. But there is a higher courage of which Torrington was wholly destitute. He shrank from all responsibility, from the responsibility of fighting, and from the responsibility of not fighting, and he succeeded in finding out a middle way which united all the inconveniences which he wished to avoid. He would conform to the letter of his instructions, yet he would not put everything to hazard. Some of his ships should skirmish with the enemy, but the great body of his fleet should not be risked. It was evident that the vessels which engaged the French would be placed in a most dangerous situation, and would suffer much loss, but there is but too good reason to believe that Torrington was base enough to lay his plans in such a manner that the danger and loss might fall almost exclusively to the share of the Dutch. He bore them no love, and in England they were so unpopular that the destruction of their whole squadron was likely to cause fewer murmurs than the capture of one of our own frigates. It was on the twenty-ninth of June that the Admiral received the order to fight. The next day, at four in the morning, he bore down on the French fleet, and formed his vessels in order of battle. He had not sixty sail of the line, and the French had at least eighty, but his ships were more strongly manned than those of the enemy. He placed the Dutch in the van and gave them the signal to engage. That signal was promptly obeyed. Evertsen and his countrymen fought with a courage to which both their English allies and their French enemies, in spite of national prejudices, did full justice. In none of Van Tromp's or de Ruyter's battles had the honor of the Batavian flag been more gallantly upheld. During many hours the van maintained the unequal contest, with very little assistance from any other part of the fleet. At length the Dutch admiral drew off, leaving one shattered and one dismasted hull to the enemy. His second-in-command and several officers of high rank had fallen. To keep the sea against the French after this disastrous and ignominious action was impossible. The Dutch ships which had come out of the fight were in lamentable condition. 
Torrington ordered some of them to be destroyed, the rest he took in tow. He then fled along the coast of Kent, and sought a refuge in the Thames. As soon as he was in the river, he ordered all the buoys to be pulled up, and thus made the navigation so dangerous that the pursuers could not venture to follow him. It was, however, thought by many, and especially by the French ministers, that if Tourville had been more enterprising, the Allied fleet might have been destroyed. He seems to have borne, in one respect, too much resemblance to his vanquished opponent. Though a brave man, he was a timid commander. His life he exposed with careless gaiety, but it was said that he was nervously anxious and pusillanimously cautious when his professional reputation was in danger. He was so much annoyed by these censures that he soon became, unfortunately for his country, bold even to temerity. There has scarcely ever been so sad a day in London as that on which the news of the Battle of Beachy Head arrived. The shame was insupportable, the peril was eminent. What if the victorious enemy should do what de Ruyter had done? What if the dockyards of Chatham should again be destroyed? What if the tower itself should be bombarded? What if the vast array of masts and yard-arms below London Bridge should be ablaze? Nor was this all. Evil tidings had just arrived from the Low Countries. The Allied forces under Waldeck had, in the neighborhood of Fleurus, encountered the French commanded by the Duke of Luxembourg. The day had been long and fiercely disputed. At length the skill of the French general and the impetuous valor of the French cavalry had prevailed. Thus at the same moment the army of Louis was victorious in Flanders, and his navy was in indisputed possession of the Channel. Marshal Humeries, with a considerable force, lay not far from the Straits of Dover. It had been given out that he was about to join Luxembourg. But the information which the English government received from able military men in the Netherlands, and from spies who mixed with the Jacobites, and which to so great a master of the art of war as Marlborough seemed to deserve serious attention, was that the army of Humeries would instantly march to Dunkirk, and would be there taken on board of the fleet of Torvilla. Between the coast of Artois and the Nore, not a single ship bearing the Red Cross of St. George could venture to show herself. The embarkation would be the business of a few hours. A few hours more might suffice for the voyage. At any moment London might be appalled by the news that thirty thousand French veterans were in Kent, and that the Jacobites of half the countries of the kingdom were in arms. All the regular troops who could be assembled for the defense of the island did not amount to more than ten thousand men. It may be doubted whether our country has ever passed through a more alarming crisis than that of the first week of July, 1690. But the evil brought with it its own remedy. Those little New England, who imagined that she could be in danger at once of rebellion and invasion, for in truth the danger of invasion was the best security against the danger of rebellion. The cause of James was the cause of France, and though to superficial observers the French alliance seemed to be his chief support, it really was the obstacle which made his restoration impossible. In the patriotism, the too often unamiable and unsocial patriotism of our forefathers, lay the secret at once of William's weakness and of his strength. They were jealous of his love for Holland, but they cordially sympathized with his hatred of Louis. To their strong sentiment of nationality are to be ascribed almost all those petty annoyances which made the throne of the Deliverer, from his accession to his death, so uneasy a seat. But to the same sentiment it is to be ascribed that his throne, constantly menaced and frequently shaken, was never subverted. For much as his people detested his foreign favorites, they detested his foreign adversaries still more. 
The Dutch were Protestants, the French were Papists. The Dutch were regarded as self-seeking, grasping, overreaching allies, the French were mortal enemies. The worst that could be apprehended from the Dutch was that they might obtain too large a share of the patronage of the crown, that they might throw on us too large a part of the burdens of the war, that they might obtain commercial advantages at our expense. But the French would conquer us, the French would enslave us, the French would inflict on us calamities such as those which had turned the fair fields and cities of the Palatinate into a desert. The hop-grounds of Kent would be as the vineyards of the Neckar. The high street of Oxford and the close of Salisbury would be piled with ruins, such as those which covered the spots where the palaces and churches of Heidelberg and Mannheim had once stood. The parsonage overshadowed by the old steeple, the farmhouse peeping from among beehives and apple-blossoms, the manorial hall embosomed in elms, would be given up to a soldiery which knew not what it was to pity old men or delicate women or sticking children. The words, The French are coming, like a spell, quelled at once all murmur about taxes and abuses, about William's ungracious manners and Portland's lucrative places, and raised a spirit as high and unconquerable as had pervaded, a hundred years before, the ranks which Elizabeth reviewed at Tilbury. Had the army of Humeris landed, it would have assuredly been withstood by almost every male capable of bearing arms. Not only the muskets and pikes, but the siths and pitchforks would have been too few for the hundreds of thousands, who, forgetting all distinction of sect or faction, would have risen up like one man to defend the English soil. The immediate effect, therefore, of the disasters in the Channel and Flanders was to unite for a moment the great body of the people. The national antipathy to the Dutch seemed to be suspended. Their gallant conduct in the fight off Beachy Head was loudly applauded. The inaction of Torrington was loudly condemned. London set the example of concert and of exertion the irritation produced by the late election at once subsided. All distinctions of party disappeared. The Lord Mayor was summoned to attend the Queen. She requested him to ascertain as soon as possible what the capital would undertake to do if the enemy should venture to make a dissent. He called together the representatives of the wards, conferred with them, and returned to Whitehall to report that they had unanimously bound themselves to stand by the government with life and fortune, that a hundred thousand pounds were ready to be paid into the exchequer, that ten thousand Londoners, well armed and appointed, were prepared to march at an hour's notice, and that an additional force, consisting of six regiments of foot, a strong regiment of horse, and a thousand dragoons, should be instantly raised without costing the crown a farthing. Of Her Majesty the city had nothing to ask, but that she would be pleased to set over these troops officers in whom she could confide. The same spirit was shown in every part of the country. Though in the southern counties the harvest was at hand, the rustics repaired with unusual cheerfulness to the musters of the militia. The Jacobite country gentlemen, who had, during several months, been making preparations for the general rising which was to take place as soon as William was gone, and as help arrived from France, now that William was gone, now that a French invasion was hourly expected, burned their commissions signed by James, and hid their arms behind wainscots or in haystacks. The Jacobites in the towns were insulted wherever they appeared, and were forced to shut themselves up in their houses from the exasperated populace. Nothing is more interesting to those who love to study the intricacies of the human heart than the effect which the public danger produced on Shrewsbury. For a moment he was again the Shrewsbury of 1688. His nature, lamentably unstable, was not ignoble, 
and the thought that, by standing foremost in the defence of his country at so perilous a crisis, he might repair his great fault and regain his own esteem, gave new energy to his body and his mind. He had retired to Epsom, in the hope that quiet and pure air would produce a salutary effect on his shattered frame and wounded spirit. But a few hours after the news of the Battle of Beachy Head had arrived, he was at Whitehall, and had offered his purse and sword to the Queen. It had been in contemplation to put the fleet under the command of some great nobleman with two experienced naval officers to advise him. Shrewsbury begged that, if such an arrangement were made, he might be appointed. It concerned, he said, the interest and the honour of every man in the kingdom not to let the enemy ride victorious in the channel, and he would gladly risk his life to retrieve the lost fame of the English flag. His offer was not accepted. Indeed, the plan of dividing the naval command between a man of quality, who did not know the points of the compass, and two weather-beaten old seamen, who had risen from being cabin-boys to be admirals, was very wisely laid aside. Active exertions were made to prepare the allied squadrons for service. Nothing was omitted which could assuage the natural resentment of the Dutch. The Queen sent a privy councillor, charged with a special mission to the States-General. He was the bearer of a letter to them in which she extolled the valour of Evertson's gallant squadron. She assured them that their ships should be repaired in the English dockyards, and that the wounded Dutchmen should be as carefully tended as wounded Englishmen. It was announced that a strict inquiry would be instituted into the causes of the late disaster, and Torrington, who indeed could not at that moment have appeared in public without risk of being torn in pieces, was sent to the tower. During the three days which followed the arrival of the disastrous tidings from Beachy Head, the aspect of London was gloomy and agitated. But on the fourth day all was changed. Bells were pealing, flags were flying, candles were arranged in the windows for an illumination. Men were eagerly shaking hands with each other in the streets. A courier had that morning arrived at Whitehall with great news from Ireland. End of section 11 End of the History of England from the Accession of James II, Volume 3, Chapter 15, by Thomas Babington Macaulay.